Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 26 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 29th of July. And Leon, we've got Neville Hurst of RMIT speaking to us today. That's right. Uh, Neville Hurst is a uh, property senior lecturer at RMIT and he is going to be talking to us about how real estate agents aren't actually benefiting from solar at selling points. And he's done a lot of research into this. Yes, yeah, very interesting. Comes right on the uh, time of uh, Josh Frydenberg talking about uh, how we're going to be using renewables and that's all there is to it. That's right, our uh, energy and environment minister. He says, coal, bad news. So now after that, we'll talk to Stephen Kukoulis, the economist. That's right. And he's going to be talking to us all about the uh, inflation rates, which uh, came to a 17-year low yesterday. Yeah. Also about the implications for interest rates. Down, down, down like coals. And uh, let's listen to Neville Hurst. Neville Hurst, you've been doing a lot of research on solar and real estate. Tell us about it. Well, the research I've been doing is actually in relation to market acceptance of... um it's really around energy efficient technologies, of which solar is one. The idea, if you like, originated, it's coming out of my PhD, and the idea originated from all the rhetoric of, dare I say, the Rudd Gillard era about um, climate change, etc., etc. And my industry experience in property told me that the market needs to be incentivized to pick up technologies and innovations and this type of thing. And there just seemed to be a lot of inference that there would be this automatic pickup by the market. And I didn't feel that that was going to happen. So that's where the research emanated from originally. So um, the particular reference, uh, a publication I had recently was focusing in on solar technologies because that's quite topical. And what, and what did you find? Well, essentially, the, what the research is showing is that there's a disconnect between what people say they're going to do and what they would like to do and what they're actually doing when they're sitting across the negotiating table deciding which house to buy and what's important in their decision-making process. So the real estate agent is basically not seeing what you can see and a lot of people would see as an asset and an additional asset to a property. They see just the house, the roof and the, the backyard sort of thing. Yeah, yes, in essence, in all that, we have to remember the agent is engaged by the seller to sell the property. That's their primary task. So in doing so, they will make judgments about what buyers are looking for and what buyers are placing emphasis on, what fashions and trends and these type of things are. And they will promote those more important features, if they exist in the house, more prominently within the advertisement. So what I was doing is reviewing real estate agent advertisements to see where these words were appearing within the advertisement to get an understanding of how much the agent was emphasising them. And what did you find? By and large, um, the words that appear within a typical real estate agency advertisement that relate to energy efficiency technologies, in this case solar, were typically embedded quite well within the advertisement, which if you follow marketing theory and advertising theory, that's where it's most likely to get lost. And people are most likely to remember what they first read, what they last read, what they first hear, what they last hear, but the middle message tends to get a bit obscured. How does that middle message manifest itself? Where, 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 how does it appear? Well, typically, the uh, an ad might say that um, it, you know it's a it's a lovely tree lined streetscape neighbourhood, and that. Uh, it has certain features and characteristics. It also has solar panels. So it sort of appears in there as if it's a, 
an add-on, which is the typical. So it doesn't, the real estate agent doesn't seem to be giving it a great deal of emphasis. Now, I guess there's two ways we could look at that. One is, uh, does the agent know what it is they're advertising? Do they understand it? Or are they responding to what the market really wants? How much depends on a general community idea that renewable energy is kind of a big thing, we ought to be doing something about it for whatever reason? How much has that penetrated the, the, the people generally? Yeah, I've spoken to some advertisements. Was, wasn't the, the, the recent publication uh, that I've had is more empirical, so it's more statistical, but I wanted to talk to some agents behind it. And within the Melbourne market, there are quite identifiable sectors of the market where there's different conversations taking place. For example, in the northern corridor uh, re- leading out through Brunswick, Coburg and going out towards Hurstbridge, 12% of the advertisements would typically have a mention of solar panels or something to do with it in the advertisement. Now, when you consider that 12% of Melbourne's housing stock have solar panels, that's almost a one for one. So, but you go at the west or to the east and it's about four or five percent advertisements. So it's about half the number of advertisements out there. So there's a certain demographic there seems th- to be. that uh, would be interested in solar on their homes out in the northern areas, less so in the east. That certainly seems to be the case, um, which is the next level of my inquiries to try and sort of unpack that a little bit to see where we're going. But anecdotally, in talking to real estate agents in those areas, being the west and the east, and even down the more southern areas such as Mornington, there seems to be a narrative which is emerging in what I'm hearing along the lines of those of us, like my own age group, approaching retirement are more focused on saving energy costs where they can. So in those areas where you have a demographic that's more uh, spending conscious, so to speak, you'll tend to get more ads appearing in those areas. In the mortgage belt type areas, less so. How much do aesthetics affect it? I mean, panels on a roof, not necessarily, some people don't like them, um, others don't see them, but did you get a, a sense of an aesthetic problem? Yes, I did actually. Probably, I'll add to that question, was it uniform across Melbourne Metro? No, it wasn't. Um, but in certain pockets, pockets where there is a greater emphasis towards, shall I say, appearances generally, that conversation seemed to be more sensitive to the real estate agent. So in areas uh, which are traditionally leafy, well-kept areas, there was a certain reluctance to it, uh, definitely. Bit like the Optus Cable in Camberwell. A little bit like that. I'm trying to avoid naming suburbs here, but <laughs> a little bit like the railway station and renovation in Camberwell, yeah. Now, I mean, would your view be that um, solar solar panels could actually add to the asset value of a property? There's... Um, a lot of research around and at the moment it's a 50-50 split on that one. I personally believe the answer to that question will be yes one day. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, What's going to drive that? Ultimately I believe it's going to be energy costs and people will start to get hurt in the hip pocket and they'll respond to that in kind. The I haven't got the latest house movement um, numbers but I mean an average Australian from the figures I've been able to get um, moves about every 10 years, 9, 10 years. So with the um, rebates, with the tariff feed levels coming right down, it's pretty hard to put a system in and get your money back within 10 years. And that's going to, uh, on that basis, is going to cause people to think about that if it's there, then maybe I'll pay a bit more for it. Does the advent of the Tesla and Redflow battery systems, have that made it more attractive? 
It's added costs, I know, but... It's it's relatively new technology, which in terms of the market, and when I say the market, I'm referring to specifically the established home market because new homes have to be built to an energy standard. So I'm looking, and given that uh, the best part of 90% of Melbourne's housing stock was built prior to um, energy efficiency standards, that's the area I'm interested in. So... The mar- that marketplace is relatively untested ground as far as the Tesla system is concerned. But I do think because of the cost, again, we're going to be confronted with the same problems of how long are we going to be sitting in that home before we intend to sell it? How much of the return on the investment is going to be? Uh, and am I going to sufficiently get myself off the grid enough to make it worth my while? And that would depend on the right. I mean, electricity prices have gone up heck of a lot. Yes, in the last few years, about sixty percent or so. Something sixty-three or five percent, something like that. Yeah, but do you think you know you need some sort of legislation saying new house, new apartment block must put in renewable energy, or do you think that's a possibility? Well, not just the research I've been doing, but the literature is saying without some form of active government intervention, the uptake is going to be slowed down considerably. That's not to say it won't happen. Some researchers are saying it will not happen. I don't believe that's the case. I think it's more we're going to get to a tipping point where it's going to be like the introduction, fortunately, pre my generation, of when the toilet was the old little box down the backyard. When it came into the house, it wasn't so much that the houses that had them was worth more, it's just the others were worth less. And once that message starts to gain traction, that's when we'll see a shift. To get there, I I personally believe we need a concerted and serious effort from the government to get behind a push through some form of incentive, uh, which to me would be upfront. So that would be really, in a sense, the extension of thou shalt in a new house put in insulation. Well, when you do uh, build new houses and extensions by 50% of the footprint of the original, then that has to be done anyway. That legislation's already there um, and you have to upgrade the original to it. But... What's not been done or policed, if you like, overly well, in my opinion, is how we get to that six-star rating that they're currently requiring. You can do very simple little things and tick a few boxes. Doesn't mean to say the house is more energy efficient, but you've ticked those boxes. Neville Hurst, thank you very much for your time. You're more than welcome. Thank you. Yeah, so as we said, you know, um, after all the argy-bargy about coal mines and things like that, you've got the government coming out and saying, well, renewables have got to be the way to go. Yes, but really has to start with uh, solar and uh, real estate agents and the real estate industry needs to take better account of that, as Neville Hurst says. Yeah, it's value add on, on, a, on a house. That's right. And now Stephen Kukoulos. Stephen Kukoulos, we've got the inflation figures coming out this week and the expectation it's going to be another low one and that's going to force the RBA to cut interest rates the following week. What's your view? Oh, look, inflation's been well contained. If we go back to the March quarter numbers three months ago, we had a huge shock there. We had a negative for inflation for the quarter. Uh, underlying inflation wasn't quite that low because there are a few special items that for- forced it to fall that much. But uh, unless we get some you know, extraordinarily uh, outrageously high number, I think that we're going to get confirmation that both headline and underlying inflation are both running in annual terms below 2%. And with the economy yeah, doing okay, but certainly not strong. And certainly with the um, 
recent uh, softness in retail sales and these sorts of indicators that the RBA will will probably trim rates next week and take them to a new fresh record low of 1.5%. And, and in doing so, they'll probably be just joining in what's happening globally. And that is, um, you know, very low rates around the world, very easy monetary policy around the world. Now, uh, do, we, do we expect further rate cuts after that? Look, the, the jury's out. The, the futures market's got a possibility, about a 50% possibility of another one. So it's taking the cash rate towards one and a quarter percent by early 2017. But it's by no means certain at this stage. So look, the market's sort of torn between, you know, sluggish growth coming out of the Eurozone and Japan, the slowdown in China, uncertainty about the momentum in the US economy. And, and over in the US, of course, we've got political issues just clouding its economic performance as investors possibly wait to see what happens in the um, presidential election over there. So in that sort of environment, maybe if the RBA do in fact cut uh, next week in August, then it might be a bit of a time out for a few months to see how the last couple of rate cuts have impacted here in Australia. But also importantly, just to take that extra couple of months uh, to see what's happening globally in the economy. Um, some you know, there's mixed news on commodity prices. They're they're better than they were at the start of the year, but they seem to have stalled in their increase. So there's many different influences that uh, will drive the RBA. But at this stage, one more cut is certainly priced in, and the possibility of another one after that is just literally a fifty fifty bet. And the other thing investors would be looking out for, of course, is the is a meeting of the Fed and the Bank of Japan this week. Indeed, we've got central bank um, central bank meetings coming thick and fast. BOJ, that's always a curious one because there's the uh, uncertainty about whether they pump prime some more, whether they implement the next round of effectively what is you know, quantitative easing again. Really difficult to judge on that. All that we do know is that monetary policy is you know, amazingly easy. We've got virtually the whole Japanese government bond yield curve below 0%, so negative interest rates in Japan. The Fed, yes, it's a bit more problematic. They've had... They've had pretty good news in recent times. The labour market continues to create a decent number of jobs every month. The unemployment rate's now been below 5% for, I think it's three straight months now. There's signs that the economy is is doing okay. And in that sort of climate, you might think that the Fed would want to hike rates just to uh, make sure that they reload the cannon, so to speak, because don't forget rates in the US are still a little below half a percent. So there's discussion whether they should hike. But of course, there's the market uncertainty that would come with a rate hike. And as we mentioned before, there's politics there. And with the presidential election getting remarkably close, um, I'm not sure whether the Fed would want to be seen to be hiking rates when... uh, the election could be a close call. Going back to the scenario of the RBA cutting rates again, what impact do you think this will have on the economy? The housing market's been remarkably resilient, um, and that's probably the biggest bugbear for the RBA. That, yeah, they're happy to cut rates to promote investment or see the Aussie dollar come off a little bit and um, uh, and to just sort of free up the cash flow for the corporate sector so to get this business investment in areas outside mining kicking up. But uh, alas, of course, with a competitive mortgage market, a lot of it's flowed through to what are stunningly low mortgage interest rates, most of them hovering at 4% or even some of the uh, two and three year fixed terms at you know three and a half or three and three quarter percent, amazingly low interest rates. So in a sense, we'll probably see that putting a bit of a floor under the housing market, which does look to be confronting uh, some problems of oversupply of, uh, of apartments in particular in Melbourne, Brisbane, parts of Canberra. Perth's being hit very hard with the mining downturn over there. So there are pockets of weakness already in housing, but further rate cuts would clearly flow through to 
mortgage holders and um, with their now being you know, negative gearing rules aren't changing with the uh, re-election of the Turnbull government. So um, investors are possibly going to be wanting to um, to take advantage of these incredibly low rates and uh, that will probably underpin housing, which of course is not really what the RBA wants. So that's a concern, but hopefully there's more to it than that and that the low rates do feed into business investment. They do feed into an improved cash flow and yeah, you know, and as the RBA would want to see with a rate cut, some more uh, more economic activity sort of locking in GDP at 3% or a little more if, if they humanly can do so. But at the same time, I mean, there hasn't been, business investment has not been that strong despite the low interest rates. At the same time, uh, we're, we're, tra- we're caught in what John Maynard Keynes called a liquidity trap where uh, there's no... There's no money going into investment and uh, we're just stuck on low interest rates. With interest rates at these low, you might have normally thought that people would be spending money like crazy. They'd be borrowing like crazy and spending, but they're not. As you rightly point out, there's um, bigger issues at play for investors, for consumers and for the corporate world. And even though the stock market's doing very well globally, and even here we're back above 5500 on the ASX, so we've actually got a pretty decent stock market rally going on globally, it's still not translating into that real economic activity. You know, unemployment in the Eurozone is still you know, well above double digits. And Bottom line, world GDP growth is in the low threes rather than uh, 4%, which is a sign of a healthier global economy. So we've got this dilemma, I suppose, that regardless of these super low interest rates around the world, central bankers are clearly trying to promote growth. They're clearly trying to get economic activity to pick up and for some growth to be actually locked in, so get some traction in terms of the expansion. But at the moment, despite you know, many, many years of very stimulatory monetary policy, they can't. And uh, and that's the dilemma. So do we get another you know, bout of rate uh, cuts or you know, easier monetary policy around the world over the next uh, few months? And of course, if that's the case, then Australia must join in. But the issue is, I mean, here with unemployment, for example, it's so uh tracking steady at around 5.7%. But the issue here is that the reason it hasn't gone up is because there's been an increase in part-time employment, which is low-paid work, whereas full-time employment has been flatlining. An excellent insight into the labour market numbers because at the headline level, they look okay. You know, jobs are still, you know, ticking up and unemployment, as you said, been below 6% for about six months now. So not a bad outcome, but... But that compositional shift of hours worked in aggregate, that the whole uh, workforce's aggregate hours worked, is actually flat or even slightly falling. And, that, and that's because there's a skewing of employment gains to part-time. By definition, people work fewer hours than full-time. And if we look at uh, underutilisation of the labour market, that is people who would like a job but aren't counted as unemployed, uh, that's actually very, very high. So we've got a lot of spare capacity in the labour market. And I think the other thing that feeds into the inflation and interest rate equation is that wages growth is at record lows uh, because there is this spare capacity in the labour market. It's very hard for workers to get a pay rise in the current climate because there's a big pool of people who are willing and able to work longer hours, either from moving from part-time to full-time or from out of the labour market back into the labour market. So there's a lot of slack in the, in the uh, employment market and we need a stronger economy to pick up that slack. So summing up, if we have a cut in uh, interest rates, uh, we can expect the market will react well, but housing will uh, will go up again. Uh, there'll be more uh, investment in housing, but uh, the rest of the economy, it won't flow through to that? It will take some time. Again, it's one of these things that you know, I still believe monetary policy works, but in this recent cycle of the last five years post-GFC, it takes a little longer for it to happen. But again, consumers are quite cautious. You know, they've been uh, accumulating their savings. Uh, they've been reluctant to spend. Sure, they're buying property. They're buying 
uh, houses either to live in or to invest in, uh, but that you know, retail sales have been sluggish, household spending has been sluggish, and that plus investment, business investment, are the missing links of a stronger economy. And low interest rates will help, but it's been a long wait. And, um, you know, we need these animal spirits to kick in to really get this economy back into a strong growth path. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think it's a 50-50 bet at the moment. Uh, the in- the inflation rate, underlying inflation rate, when you strip out all the uh, volatile items, came out to about 1.5%, which is broadly in line with what the Reserve Bank was saying. And so there's no great surprises there. Yeah, so at the moment, I noticed the market betting on a rate cut next week is 52%. So it's a 50-50 bet. Yeah. Absolutely. And all we can do is wait and see what happens. That's right. All right. Now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, for a start, Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump has threatened to withdraw the United States from the World Trade Organization. The move that economists warn would result in a global financial crisis is all part of Trump's strategy to attack free trade. And that's to poach disaffected blue-collar voters from Democrat Hillary Clinton in particularly the uh, rust bucket states like Pennsylvania, Michigan and Ohio. And meanwhile, Citigroup has recommended we short the peso. And it says it looks set for further declines as risks related to the US presidential elections increase. Anyway, speaking with Chuck Todd on NBC's Meet the Press, Trump said the US would pull out of the global trade body if the global trade body interfered with his plans to impose penalties on companies that moved American production offshore. It's bizarre. It is very bizarre. I mean, so he's taking on the role of bring it all back inside the United States. These companies won't do it. They'll move offshore. It is It is totally strange. Totally strange. So watch that space. Now, Gary, the Treasurer Scott Morrison has told the financial world the government will press ahead with budget repair and it won't be backing down on its contentious changes to superannuation. Now, a day after addressing G20 finance ministers in China, Mr Morrison told CNBC that there'd be minimal changes to the superannuation package. And I'm quoting him here, he says, there can be no doubting our commitment in the fiscal consolidation that we have embarked upon. There are some minor technical issues that we're still working through, which are part of the normal process but they overwhelmingly enjoy support in terms of, obviously, our own party. These are reforms that are very critical to the long-term sustainability of our superannuation system. I think these reforms are somewhat overdue, and they really do right what have been some very generous concessions that have been around the system. Now, Mr Morrison's strategy to talk to one of the world's leading news networks is important because what it does, Gary, is it sends a message to credit rating agencies that the government is intent on winding back the deficit and debts and putting the budget back in surplus. And of course, the agencies have threatened to cut Australia's AAA credit rating if that doesn't happen. And so next month, the government will release a draft legislation for the superannuation changes, removing the $6 billion in superannuation tax concessions for high-income earners. And the most controversial change, which has drawn fire from Liberal backbenchers and from within the Liberal Party, has been the proposal to place a lifetime cap of $500,000 on contributions, which will save the budget $550 million over four years. And that's backdated to contributions made till, since July 2001 and has come under attack from the coalition backbench and Liberal Party donors because it's retrospective. Now, last week, it was reported the government's looking to play Kate backbench anchors by inserting exemptions to the $500,000 lifetime cap on non-concessional contributions. And these exemptions would be life events classified as a one-off windfalls. And that include things like inheritance, divorce settlements, eligibility for a trust payment. And the proposed changes come under fire from financial advisors and government MPs 
who claim it's unworkable and might even create some sort of incentive for couples to divorce. So let's just watch that space, Gary. Yeah, the idea of divorce and couples isn't actually new because a lot of pensions, people on the uh, state pension, uh, have separated simply for that, to get a few more bob. That's right, that's right. So let's just watch. Anyway, inflation in Australia has fallen to its lowest level since 1999, suggesting the RBA cutting interest rates next week might still be on the cards. And falls in domestic holidays, motor vehicles and telecommunications equipment saw the consumer price index rising 0.4% for the June quarter, which is totally in line with economists' forecasts, and 1% for the year to June. And that's dragged down the annual rate, as I said, to 1%, which is well below the central bank's 2 to 3% inflation target ban. That figure falls, follows a fall of 0.2% in the March quarter of 2016. Yeah, and after all that, if the RBA does cut it... Uh the banks aren't going to change their mortgage rate. No, so it, all eyes will be on the RBA next week. Now, Australian Competition and Consumer Commission Rod Sims says badly managed privatisations are driving up prices at the expense of economic reform and competition. And he says governments have created asset sales to maximise profits with no consideration for consumers or business. And the situation, he says, is getting worse. Now, Mr. Sims told the Melbourne Economic Forum that he'd supported privatisation for 30 years because he felt it was good for economic efficiency. But now he said he was almost at the point of opposing privatisation because state and federal governments were now blatantly selling assets in a way to purely maximise proceeds. And he cited the controversial shift of vocational education in the private sector away from the publicly funded TAFE institutes and concerns about electricity privatisation in Queensland, which has seen power prices doubling over the past five years. Mrs. Sims says badly structured privatisation undermines people's confidence in economic reform. And the ACCC is actually now reviewing the sale of the Port of Melbourne, and it's already stopped a Victorian government plan which would have seen stevedoring rents jump by 750%, and the port consolidated its market dominance ahead of its privatisation. And the ACCC's big concern is around involvement of the big industry superannuation fund, IFM, in the bid for the port, when it already owns big chunks of Port of Botany, Port of Brisbane and Port Kembla. Yeah, and they'll control the pricing. But, I mean, Medibank Private has been privatised, and... uh our premiums have all gone up. It's funny that, isn't it? Very funny. Now, Woolworths will incur restructuring costs of more than $4 billion in 2016, wiping out operating profits after booking another $1 billion in write-offs and provisions and implementing a new operating model, which will lead to the loss of another 500 jobs, the closure of more than 30 stores and asset sales. Woolworths says earnings before interest and tax before one-off costs would slump as much as 32% in 2016 to between $2.55 billion and $2.57 billion, ahead of consensus forecasts of $2.51 billion excluding losses of more than $200 million from home improvement. And Woolworths also announced another $959 million in restructuring charges on top of the $3.2 billion in provisions and write-downs announced in February when the retailer confirmed plans to sell the home improvement sector and sell its masters and home timber and hardware businesses. And Woolworths flagged the potential sale of its low-profit, easy-buy online business after separating it from the big W department store chain. And look, it's going to take years to get Woolworths back on track. Yeah, meantime, of course, Aldi's building stores like it's going out of style. That's right, that's right. And that's really interesting because there's been a really interesting study from report from Moody's, and they're saying... Um, that Aldi's rapid expansion is likely to hit the credit ratings of Metcash, Coles and Woolworths. Now, Moody's Vice President Senior Analyst Ian Chitter says Aldi's expansion will hit shelf prices, 
and that will affect margins for all supermarket operators. Moody's expects Aldi to expand its store base by around 16% per year over the next two years as it ramps up store rollouts in South Australia and Western Australia, and that's up from 9% in 2014. And Chittera says having reached what is a critical mass, Aldi will significantly raise its marketing budget because it now has a store base to leverage the incremental marketing investments. And that will boost its brand presence in Australia and expand its customer reach, which he says is a credit negative for all the other supermarket operators. Now, Telstra's chief operating officer, Kate McKenzie, who was closely linked with the telco's embarrassing outages, is stepping down. Now, Ms McKenzie joined Telstra 12 years ago and was appointed chief operating officer in 2013. Before that, she'd served as group managing director, Telstra Innovation Products and Marketing. Now, Telstra's outages include the massive one in February, reportedly caused by what Telstra called an embarrassing human error. And that was followed by two further failures in March, which affected up to 8 million customers. And on June 30th, the last day of their financial year, there was one that saw a big chunk of Telstra's enterprise customers losing internet connections for seven hours after the IP network crashed. Well, I reckon she had to go because someone had to take the fall for it, and I reckon it wouldn't have been the CEO, Andy Penn. No, 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 that's right. (laughs) Somebody had to fall on the sword, and it was uh, Kate. Now, uh, with US telco Verizon buying Yahoo's web assets for $4.83 billion, the owner of Yahoo in Australia, Seven West Media, says it's now looking at its strategic options for its local digital venture with Yahoo. It just doesn't say what those options are, but Seven West Media says it's looking forward to discussions with Verizon about its plans for Yahoo in Australia and what impact this might have on Yahoo 7 in Australia and New Zealand. Now, the 50-50 joint venture combines Seven's premium content and marketing support with Yahoo's technology, and the business recorded annual revenues of $99.6 million in the year ending June 2015. So, I don't know what those options are, but I reckon they're going to sell out. I would think so. Finally, uh, ANZ customers have failed to recover millions of dollars in fees, with the High Court yesterday dismissing a class action challenging the bank's fees on late credit card payments. And the full bench of the High Court upheld the 2015 court decision, which found the ANZ could levy late payment fees on customers. And the judges ruled that the payments were not penalties nor that they contravene statutory prohibitions about unconscionable conduct, unjust transactions and unfair contract terms. And this decision is a significant blow for law firm Morris Blackburn and litigation funder IMF Bentham, which had run the largest consumer-led class action in Australia's legal history. Gary, it's also a huge relief for the other big banks, including the Commonwealth Bank, Westpac, National Australia Bank, Citibank, St George, Bank SA and Bank West, which also face class action for laced fees, and their cases have been put on hold pending yesterday's decision. It's interesting, of course, that ANZ did, in fact, drop uh, its penalty from 35 to uh, $20. Um, doesn't mean much, but it's another reason to see that the banks are on the nose. Well, it's not going to help the bank's reputation. And that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we've got a terrific interview with uh, Coach Ashley Thompson on business coaching. He's going to be talking to us all about what companies need to look out for. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.